This message first aired on the radio on April 19, 2004. As we come into the section of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, our study will speed up a little bit in the sense that we're going to cover more scripture today than we usually will. We believe that the issues that are touched upon in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 all have a certain relationship that we do well to pick up and put together, and we'll try to get that done, the Lord helping us. Now, when we look here at 2 Corinthians 7, we'll begin reading in the first verse, and we'll read all the way through it, and we'll see that there is really a scope of the apostles' experience, and then there's an introduction to the issues that were touched upon in the previous epistle, or the epistle of 1 Corinthians. So let's read it together. If you have your Bible, it's better read. Otherwise, let's just be listening here. So we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll start with the first verse, but we'll start preaching around verse 4. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man, we have corrupted no man, we have defrauded no man. I speak this not to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforts those that are cast down, comfort us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I had made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season." Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. For behold this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, yea, what fear, Yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found to be a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you, in all things. So we see this wonderful mind of Paul toward the Corinthians. We see the delicateness of his discussion to them, with them, concerning his rather severe letter that we know to be 1 Corinthians. And of course, in view in chapter 7 here of 2 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
the issue of the man who had his father's wife, not his mother. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we will see in view the admonition of the Corinthians concerning the gift, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which they were to be preparing for the poor saints in Judea who were under tremendous affliction at this time under the rule of the emperor of Rome, Claudius, who had run out the Jews from Rome. So here we have now a number of things to pick up and discuss. First of all, we take the first few verses, and you may remember that the first few verses of chapter 7 attach very much to the subject matter of chapter 6, where he discusses the promises that God gave uh, to us, that God gives to us if we will follow proper separation from the world, especially and specifically if we will refuse to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, as is the habit of so many today. And remember the promises God said he would dwell in them and walk in them, I'll be their God. Here is a quotation out of scripture. He will dwell in us together. That actually is not the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is in mind, but it is the corporate indwelling of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as we abide in him, he will abide in us corporately and together in the obvious context is the local church. The context is Corinthian, the Corinthian church, which is a local church. Together we form what is known as the temple of the living God. And that, of course, at the time of the writing of Second Corinthians signaled that that temple that was standing in Jerusalem was of no use to God and that was no surprise to anyone who knew about the temple that it was of no use to God for at the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ the veil of the temple was rent top to bottom and of course when the Apostle Paul was falsely accused in the temple precincts later than the writing of this epistle we have the ominous words of scripture the temple doors were shut of course the temple doors were shut so that Paul wouldn't be killed on the inner side of those doors, but he would still have been murdered on the temple side, except the grace of God preserved him. But that temple that was then standing, that was standing at the time of the writing of Second Corinthians, was so much just a piece of stone. It was so much just Nehushtan, God bringing in a better thing, the temple being a shadow, a mere shadow of the body that God was bringing in. And that body is our Lord Jesus Christ's body, that is going to be the preoccupation of the scriptures as they progress here from 2 Corinthians all the way through the epistles to the Thessalonians, which we're taking up in our series. But that's the first promise, that God would dwell in us together corporately and walk in us together corporately, direct us uh, together. That's the first promise, verse 16. The second promise is, come out from among them, be you separate and I will receive you, that God will give us a great reception. So here's a wonderful promise that corresponds to our reception of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we will receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we will follow this command to not become unequally yoked, that is to say, not become yoked together with someone of a different kind. We're new creation in Christ. They're not. Doesn't mean we're mean to them but it does mean that we remain separate. If we'll do that and we'll come out from among them and be separate, then the Lord will receive us. And that's a more marvelous thing, really. We receive our Lord Jesus Christ even more marvelously. 
God will receive us. And then, verse 18, he'll be a father unto us, and we'll be his sons and his daughters. That is to say, he'll help us to grow in grace. In fact, he'll cause us to grow in grace. He will bestow his marvelous grace superabundantly upon us. And so why hang around in those unequal yokes, my friend? Well, that's a capsulization of our last discussion, but that takes up these three verses, the first three of chapter 7, where the apostle pleads with the Corinthians. He says, look, receive us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. The perverse thing about Christians, and especially the Corinthian Christians, we'll see that later in the study of this chapter, is that when somebody does them good like the apostle, who wronged no one, who corrupted no one, and who defrauded no one, that one they won't receive. But if somebody wrongs them, and corrupts them, and defrauds them, and smites them on the face, they will receive him. That's the perverse nature of the carnal man. And now he says, look, receive us. He says, I'm not talking about the way that we approach things uh, in order to condemn you or to bring charges against you for your rejection, but I have said before that you're in our hearts to die and live with you. He's trying to get them to open their hearts to him in the way that his heart is open to them. And you may remember that he said, in Second Corinthians chapter 6, O Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is large. Enlarge your own hearts. We're not causing your problems. Your straightness, your confinement, your lack of liberty has to do with the way you're walking. We're not confining you, you're confining yourselves. Now he comes back to that same thought and he says, Look, you're in our hearts to die and to live with you. We have great boldness of speech. Verse 4, here's our friend Parisia boldness of speech. He said, great is my boldness of speech toward you. He said, I have a real release of the liberty that's in me. I have a real release of the truth that's in me toward you. He says, great is my parousia toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with consolation or comfort, and I am exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. And this is our old friend Flipsis. He says, despite the fact that you're not ignorant of it now, I've told you all about this great tribulation that we have, this great Flipsis that we have. Listen, I'm filled with comfort. This now harkens back to the way that the whole epistle began, where he calls God the God of all encouragement, or the God of all comfort. And you may remember in the first chapter of this epistle, how the apostle laid out that God is the God of all comfort and how that comfort works, that God brings about uh, tribulation and trouble in a life, and then he brings comfort to answer it. Verse 3 of Second Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that's the Thalipsis, in order that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ, or Christ's suffering abound in us, so our consolation, or our comfort, also abounds by Christ. Now the apostles applying this in the seventh chapter, where he says, listen, I have been comforted. I am filled with comfort. Well, how was he comforted? He says, how we're fighting. He says, when we were in Macedonia, when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. 
He said that we certainly were uncomfortable when we came into Macedonia. Now, he came into Macedonia looking for Titus. That's why he didn't go to Corinth. He decided to go into Macedonia. It was going to come out of Macedonia and then back into Corinth. That was his intention. Things didn't work out as well as he had hoped because when he came into Macedonia, he says, Our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side. We just had way too much trouble to do the thing that we had hoped to do. Troubled on every side. On the outside, or it says, without, were fightings. This is mache. This is actual physical danger. And there were fightings on the outside. Within, fears. Now, the apostle had his fears within. He admitted having his fears within. When he tells Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, that doesn't mean that we don't have fears. It means that when we have the spirit of fear, when we have fear on the inside, understand God did not give that to us. That is our weakness. That is our own problem. That is not the spirit that God gives. God gives the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, all of which are expressed here in the great parousia, or boldness, or release that the apostle had. You remember that this freedom of expression that the apostle gives here in 2 Corinthians 7 is something wrought by God, and it is something that the early church prayed for that we would have. And friends, if they needed parousia, if they needed boldness, if they needed release, we also do. Some of you I know listen to this ministry on a regular basis. Uh, You wonder what you can do. Maybe you are wondering what you can do for this ministry. We don't solicit funds. We don't solicit any kind of commercial activity on this broadcast. But I'll tell you what, we do solicit and covet your prayers that we would be bold and have great freedom of speech in the broadcast, whether on the internet or on the airwaves and that's something that God can give us in answer to not only our own prayers but also your prayers for us. So here now he says when we came into Macedonia we had no kind of rest that you would acknowledge on the outside there was just fightings on the inside we were fearful verse 6 nevertheless God who comforts those are cast down picking up that grand theme that God is the God of all comfort, the one who comforts those who are cast down. And here now he's relating personally to the Corinthians who were cast down, no doubt, at the admonitions that he gave them. And I'm sure that he is now uh, believing them to understand a little bit about what it is to be cast down, what it is to be on the inside disappointed, what it is to be fearful, what it is to be challenged in character. And he said, now God comes alongside when that happens. God is the one who gives great comfort when that happens. God who comforts those who are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, here the apostle was very worried about where was Titus. He went out of his way to go look for him. He thought he'd find Titus sooner and determined, well, maybe he's up in Macedonia. And when he came into Macedonia, here came Titus from Corinth, by the way, And that put the apostle's mind at great ease, and he now ascribes that God comforted him in all the tribulations that he was experiencing in Macedonia, fightings on the outside, fears. He had just come off solid rounds of fightings and fears out of Ephesus and so forth some months earlier, and now he's comforted by Titus coming to him. And here, verse 7, and not only by his coming. So Titus came, but he came from Corinth, 
bearing news of the Corinthians, and here the apostle in his tender, affectionate way says, and we were not only comforted by his coming, but by the comfort wherewith he was comforted in you. And now he compliments the Corinthians and said, you gave great comfort to Titus, and he had comfort that he was able to minister to me because he was comforted by the Corinthian response to the first epistle. And that's what he said. He was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. The apostle said this. It was great comfort to him. It was a great relief of mind. It was a cup of cold water to his parched throat in the desert of his sufferings when Titus brought the news to him that the Corinthians maintained their affection, that they mourned over their misbehavior, that they had a committed mind to do the right things that the apostle had written them about, and he said he rejoiced all the more. Well, we'll come back. We'll be in the 8th verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This disclosure of Christian affection is a very touching thing. And we'll be back in a minute. I'm John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. So here in the 8th verse, having cleared the matter with the Corinthians and having encouraged them with their response to his first epistle, he explains his affections and how he reacted to his own first epistle. And here we get great insight into the writing of the Word of God and how intimately mixed up and incorporated the person of the apostle is with his writing. And I think we see something about how God breathes the scripture with this. You see that God not only prepares the words of the scripture and the pen of the writer, but he prepares the instrument as the pen. And the instrument is the apostle Paul. In First and Second Corinthians, we especially see the delicate and sanctified nature of the writer of scripture as well as the scripture itself. The scripture is God-breathed, but God is certainly, sovereignly superintending every aspect of character, circumstance, and verbiage of the authors of Scripture here, the Apostle Paul. Now he discloses his affections and how he himself was looking at and speculating at the writing of and the acceptance of his first Corinthian letter. He said, For though I made you sorry with a letter... I do not repent, though I did repent. Now, that's a phrase that bears some examination and some meditation. He says, though I made you sorry, I made you feel sorrow with the letter. That's the letter of 1 Corinthians. We'll come to how people speculate there were three letters, but we won't trouble ourselves with that because we believe that when the apostle says this third time I'm coming to you, we understand that to mean very clearly that he came in person once and by letter twice. But here he says, But though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. Now this word repent, this is interesting, an interesting use of the word repent, because it helps us so much to understand what repent really means. Repentance means changed his mind. So the meaning here is that Paul first thought, he says, now when I wrote you this letter, I first thought, boy, that's a tough letter. And I wonder if I should have written it so toughly. And maybe he was on the brink of saying, well, I, I wrote it, I my mind was one way, 
but now I'm kind of changing my mind. Maybe I shouldn't have been so tough with these people. But then he got the refreshing news from Titus that it moved them in the proper way. And so he said, so I did not repent. He says, I don't repent. I didn't change my mind, though I did change my mind. Now here he says, I was giving consideration, really. I was thinking differently that you might get the very tough statements that I gave and harden yourself against them and they'd be ineffective. But when Titus came and he told me of their earnest desire, verse 7, their mourning, that is their sorrow about their own behavior, and their fervent mind, that is to say their zeal to clear themselves, or their zeal toward Paul, they said, this is our beloved apostle, he's telling us stuff we need to hear and we need to act accordingly. Boy, is that a wonderful response to the severe letter of the 1 Corinthians. Boy, it's not the response people give today to 1 Corinthians when they read it. You read 1 Corinthians in a church today, and there's nothing of the kind of appreciation that the Corinthians had. There's no zeal to do it. There's no mourning that we're not doing it. And uh, certainly then we begin to take apart the Apostles' letter and say, well, we're not going to have anything to do with these kind of things. But here is not how the Corinthians, as questionable as you may consider that church to be, understand that they took 1 Corinthians and they did something about it. So he says, though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though it was just for a season. And so... Here's the way that the Word of God may come to us. The Word of God, when it corrects us, comes to us and it makes us sorry. It tells us that we're wrong. It tells us that we need to change our point of view, that we need to change our mind about things. We need to go about things differently. That's how the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God comes to us. If we're not careful, we'll become disaffected against the Word of God, against the preacher of the Word of God, and of course that means disaffected against God Himself in this case. And then we'll become hard-hearted and resist, and then what can be done for you? What can be said to you? If you reject the Word of God, God has nothing else for you. He does all these things by His Word. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds, paying heed to the Word of God. As it said in James chapter 1, receive with meekness the engrafted Word which is able to save your souls. Even these carnal Corinthians receive the Word of God. So don't be too high-minded, but fear, because those carnal people received the Word of God and acted accordingly. And if you'll go back through and read 1 Corinthians in your local church and to your own self, you see if you have responded well to those severe things that the Apostle lays out there. Now he says, Okay, you were made sorry, but just for a season now I rejoice. He says, I rejoice not that you were made sorry. He says, I realize you were made sorry. I'm glad it was just for a season. But I'm rejoicing right now not because you were sorry, not because my letter made you sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. And sorrow is of no value in and of itself. I used to be part of a religion where sorrow had its own value. That was a Roman Catholic religion. And sorrow seemed to have its own value. If you could make yourself feel bad enough, that would make its own value. We're in the so-called Easter season, named after the goddess Astarte, and the Roman Catholic Church, and the uh, Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson. 
both take into account at least some of the the stations of the cross and to the to the believing mind the believing protestant mind for example uh, you say well there's value in the meditation on the lord's suffering and indeed there is but not if you merely are sorry or feeling sorry for the lord which of course he doesn't want you to feel sorry for him what he wants is you to appreciate that which he's done for you and then commands all men everywhere to repent and to receive the lord jesus christ as Lord and Savior. So here the Apostle equally says, look, the sorrow itself, I'm not happy about that. I'm not rejoicing in your sorrow. I'm rejoicing that you sorrowed unto repentance. This is metanoia. And here the Apostle's using the same word that he used concerning himself, but it has a very different application. The Apostle certainly didn't sin in the writing of the first epistle of the Corinthians, but the Corinthians were sinning extensively together as a church by failing to judge the matter of blatant fornication in their midst. And that's now the subject matter, of course. That was the hottest topic. First Corinthians chapter 5 was the hottest topic. First Corinthians chapter 6, also a hot topic in that first epistle. And he's talking here now about these matters and he says look I'm not happy that you got sorry and I'm not happy to make you sorry what I am happy about is that you sorrowed to repentance verse 9 for you were made sorry after a godly manner you weren't made sorry because circumstances of life consequences of sin and so forth brought sorry circumstances upon you you were made sorry after a godly manner because we pointed out the errors of your way and you listened and changed your mind and turned around. For now he gives us a principle. He says, he says you were sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. In other words, you sorrowed after a godly manner and it worked to your good and so we didn't damage you at all. Verse 10, for godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation. And this is the salvation of your Christian life not the salvation of your spirit which you receive when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but this is now to be saved from a wasted Christian life godly sorrow works repentance unto that not to be repented of so here godly sorrow works a change of mind unto salvation of your Christian life which is not to be repented of and so the apostle neither repents for having written it neither should they change their mind about having changed their mind. But the sorrow of this world works death. So godly sorrow works repentance, but the sorrow of this world, that is, the the sorrow of this world is caused by the consequences of sin in our own life. That works death. But this here thing, this works the salvation of the life. For behold this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, here's what it resulted in. Godly sorrow changed their mind, and what was wrought from that? Verse 11, what carefulness it wrought in you. Here, this has to do with diligence in following up on their error. What diligence it wrought in you. What clearing of yourselves. In other words, this is the word apologia. This is the word we have for apology. This has to do with rationalizing our behavior. That's what apology really is. 
It's not about saying something, I say I'm sorry, but it's about correcting our behavior and correcting our thinking first. Of course, that really has to do with correcting our thinking. So here it says what diligence it worked, what straightening out of your thinking it worked, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, that is to say what earnestness, what zeal, that is what energy to do the right thing, Yea, what revenge. So we have these things that godly sorrow works out. Carefulness, clearing of yourself, indignation, fear, that's the fear of God, vehement desire, zeal, and revenge. These marvelous things that it works in the life. Here, this revenge, maybe not the best word, what vindication, a desire to vindicate yourself in a matter that's a question that you may become blameless. Do you know, Christian friend, it is possible for you to live blameless before God? In fact, God's man must live blameless before God. Not innocent, but blameless. And it is possible for Christians to be blameless together and to acquit themselves before God in their church life, as the Corinthians did. But there needs to be a commitment and a dedication There needs to be a zeal. There needs to be a purposeful, diligent approach to get this done. And he says, now in all things you have commended yourselves or approved yourselves to be clear or pure in this matter. Verse 11, what a marvelous opportunity we have that we can demonstrate ourselves, we can commend ourselves to the consciences of others by overcoming the errors of our way. This is truly the seed of revival of a local church. It has to do very simply with looking at the scriptures and changing our minds in such a way that we're going to do this. Not that we defend ourselves, not that we attack the messenger, not that we fend off the message and try to change what it says and distort the scripture and all other things, but that we take the Scripture for what it is, the Word of God, that we take the messenger of the Scripture, that preacher who tells us the Word of God for what he is, the messenger of God, and that we clear ourselves personally and together in the application of it. Verse 12, now the apostle says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Now here we have really a couple of applications that we could see in verse 12. He that did the wrong can apply both to the one who had his father's wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It can also apply in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to the one who wronged his brother in a civil tort. It can apply to both of those. And here he says we didn't write it in behalf of the one who had suffered wrong nor did we write it because of the one that did the wrong. We wrote it for the benefit of the entire church and that our care for you in the sight of God might be made evident to you. He said there was something bigger than the loss of money by the one guy and the wrongdoing of the other guy. There's something bigger than the debauchery of the son and the shame experienced by the father and that son having his wife. There's something larger than you There is this whole issue of your testimony as a church together before God and our affection and care for you. The apostle is pointing out that there was nothing less at stake 
than the ministry of the Word of God in Corinth. And friends, if we would appreciate the proper value of the ministry of the Word of God, that we truly are a city set on a hill that's not to be hid, that we truly are salt and light in a world that is decaying, that is in darkness, if we truly valued the purpose of God, if we were truly filled with the knowledge of His will and valued the purpose of God in an otherwise unapparent mix an unapparent congregation called the local church here on earth if we really knew what God had for us friends we'd be a very different people wouldn't we so verse 13 therefore we were comforted in your comfort and here now he applies what he wrote about how God comforts others in their affliction that they might comfort others and he's probably surprising the Corinthians to find out that by simply complying with his epistle by simply doing that which he instructed in first Corinthians they ministered unto the apostle in ways that were as he puts it yea and exceeding the more joyed we were for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all what a marvelous Christian affection this is notice it doesn't have anything to do with money it doesn't have anything to do with noses or noise or any kind of the measures of the productivity that we would apply in our local churches this has to do with the character and quality of the local church and how it gave great joy to this one who is the Apostle Paul who founded that church and what marvelous Christian affections words beggar here but I feel just as the Apostle Paul breaks out from time to time in doxologies concerning the great grace of the Lord that one is due here verse 14 for if I boasted anything to him of you I am not ashamed that is about uh, Titus but as we spoke all things to you in truth even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth he said just like I told you the truth in the epistle let me tell you you made my boasting about you to Titus to be just as true as the Word of God himself and what a commendation to these Corinthians is that statement and then he said his affection toward you is more abundant while he remembers the obedience of you all how with fear and trembling you received him Christian friend do you see these affections in your local church are these affections between you the hearer and the one who ministers the Word of God they're supposed to be they're supposed to be there the Christian church to be marked by these affections they'll know we're Christians by our love one for another not as we brag about it but as we actually do it and let me say the context is right there in your local church with those Christians you know I'm John Malone, this is BibleStudy.net, and we'll be back in a minute for the remainder of this program. Now as we come into the 8th and ninth chapters of 2 Corinthians, we come across one of those topics that we don't like to hear the preacher talk about, I suppose. It's about money. It's about the use of money and the ministry that the Lord has uh, given to the Corinthians. The apostle here is going to talk to them in a very gracious way just as he did throughout all the churches among the Gentiles, even including in Macedonia, where he had recently come from twice before writing this epistle. So here we come to the 8th chapter of Second Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. 
Now, I find this to be an interesting thing because he has just complimented the Corinthians on the grace of God visited to them through the letter that he had written where they corrected their problems in Corinth and their omissions. But now he comes here to the last item that he addressed in 1 Corinthians as touching the ministering to the saints in Jerusalem and throughout Judea, which is addressed in the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Let me just read that where he wrote, now concerning, in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. And so here he had given instruction to the churches in three different areas, three different regions, in Galatia, in Macedonia, and in Achaia, where the church at Corinth was a leading church. And he said, listen, what I'm doing here is I'm telling you of the dire straits of these believers who were first in Christ in Judea, that they are in very difficult straits, that they have very severe financial problems, and we need to help them. And so he says, now let me tell you Corinthians how it is, and they're going to circulate this letter throughout all of Achaia. Let me tell you how it went in Macedonia, how this matter went over in Macedonia concerning the collection for the poor saints in Judea. He said, here's the grace of God in Macedonia, verse 2, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. And now here, what does this really say? He says that in Macedonia, they have great thlipsis. They have great afflictions and troubles. This is not true in Corinth. In Corinth, they uh, have great prosperity, and they don't have the kind of troubles that the believers had in Macedonia. And he said, in their great trial of affliction, that's our friend the thlipsis, in their trial of thlipsis, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their thoughts about others, their liberality, or their considerations of others. Friends, we need to make sure that we're thinking about others. God will take care of us. He wants us to be a blessing. And a lot of times where our minds get corrected is when we're suffering great affliction, when we have trials. And, of course, one of the greatest tests is what will we do with the resources, the money that God puts into our hands. You know, the true riches is the Word of God. God tries you before He'll give you the true riches to see how you will handle the airsats ones or the, the, the fake ones, the fake riches. Those are the riches of this world. And here he says in Macedonia, these guys were under great duress, and their joy rose up to face the duress that they were under. They had great joy, and they had a great lack, and this combination of joy and a lack of resources brought them to a place of thinking about others, being single-minded in their pursuit about others instead of themselves. And this is the perverse nature that we are when we are put at great trial. We rise to the occasion and we think about others. When we have an abundance of things, we begin to think that's what our life consists of, and we become a frightfully selfish and introspective and self-seeking people. We might just say we have the Macedonians on the one hand and the Corinthians on the other. Now he's boasting about the Macedonians, of course, to provoke the Corinthians to emulation in this matter, that they would find themselves also spiritually lacking in this aspect 
and would rise to the occasion. Now he continues to boast on the Macedonians in verse 3. He says, for to their power. Literally, he says, to dunamis. He says, these guys aren't just talkers. They have power. He says, they're dunamis. They're power. I bear record. Yea, beyond power, they were willing of themselves. He said, these guys, when it comes to spiritual character with regard to money, are supermen. We have Batman and Superman here in Macedonia, whereas you fellas are 90-pound weaklings. Now, he doesn't put it that way. Let me put it this way. You guys might be 90-pound weaklings. Now, he doesn't put it that way. He puts it much more graciously, but that's in there. The thought is this. Look, you guys have done very well in what I talked to you about in all the occasions except for chapter 16. And this is going to go on for two chapters as he lays out the Corinthians' dispositional problem about money. And these two chapters are well placed and are a good study for you and your church because here you find where Christian dispositions really make the difference. Verse 4, Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now here's how the Macedonians were. They weren't being told what to do by the apostle. They were forward to do this and prayed upon the apostle, entreated the apostle that they would take this gift and give it to those in need in Judea. In fact, the Macedonians were single-minded and were committed to put the gift upon the apostle. This is the very opposite of what most the time is done inside Christianity. God loves a single-minded, a hilarious giver. The Macedonians were that. There was no grudging here. They were forward to get it done. Now, if you'll conduct yourself wisely in your churches, and preaching, brother, this is especially you, you'll see that you want this kind of affection to be built up. It's not about how much money you can get. It's not about how much funds you raise. You don't need to be careful what you build, but how you build. Notice here in Macedonia, money was no issue because they obviously didn't have much. It said that they had deep poverty. The issue wasn't how much money they had. The issue wasn't how much money you could get from this church. The issue was, does this church have such Christian dispositions that they are pressing upon the apostle with their giving so that he would distribute their money rather than the apostle pressing them to be giving? It's an entirely different spiritual circumstance, regardless of what the outcome is. Whether the Macedonians gave $100 or a $1 million is irrelevant here. We don't even see what those nominal values are, but we do see that they're single-minded, that they're forward to give, and that they press upon the apostle the gift, would you please minister this to the saints in need? And he says, and not only as we hoped, But first they gave themselves to the Lord, or their own selves to the Lord, and then unto us by the will of God. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And of course, this is really the key. It's not whether you will give anything to God or to his servants or anything, but will you give yourself to God? The issue isn't your resources. The issue is you. Will you first give yourself, your own self, unto the Lord's will. Listen, it is not important, nor should it be important, nor should it even be done, 
that Christian churches accumulate funds and have slushy bank accounts. I don't believe a Christian church needs any money over and beyond present needs in their accounts. God entrusts men and women individually with stewardship. But because when men and women give themselves unto the Lord, when that has already been done, their hearts, minds, and pocketbooks follow. And so here, the Macedonians, whether they had money or didn't have money, didn't matter. They were given to the Lord, and whatever needs arose that God had for them to walk in, they would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's will, and they walked in it. This is now the disposition which is to be achieved in the local church. It is this heartfelt giving of oneself to the Lord and then unto us according to the will of God. Not that the Apostle Paul knew what the will of God for the Macedonian churches were, but that they were already filled with the will of God and they pressed upon him to do the service that God had actually called him to do. And so here he says, how much was this? Verse 6, inasmuch that we desired Titus that as he had begun, so he would finish in you the same grace also. He said, this experience with the Macedonians stimulated us, and it encouraged us, and it promoted us that we desired Titus to continue the work that we saw in Macedonia, that he would finish it also with you, insofar as he's already worked with you. And now he says, verse 8, Look, I speak not by commandment, And that's important when it comes to Christian giving, that it not be according to commandment. It isn't according to commandment, by occasion of the forwardest of others, to prove the sincerity of your love. I had a brother just recently that I met, and I love him in the Lord, and I got on very well with him. And he told me that all the leadership of his church, in order to be part of the leadership, must tithe. Well, I have a problem with that. First of all, the the scripture, the New Testament scriptures, do not teach tithing whatsoever. Tithing is something out of the law. We're not under the law. The New Testament doesn't teach tithing. It teaches giving. It teaches giving out of a willing heart. It teaches giving after I've given myself to the Lord. And it teaches that giving is not to be by commandment, but by occasion here or sincerity of the love that we have one for another. It is a more excellent way. We ought to be given to it. And it is the grace of God visited in a life that enables one to be a giver, a hilarious giver. Now, of course, you have to be a getter in order to be a giver. And so, young man, you who desire to be a big giver, work with your hands and be a big getter, and we'll see if you turn out to be a giver. Uh, But this is the grace of God in the life. And by the way, it is the test that God will place in your life before he commits to you the truth of Scripture. Now, we have the example the apostle lays out of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how to be a giver? Well, here's one who's a giver. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Now, it's one thing to be poor. It's a whole other thing to make yourself poor. The Lord Jesus Christ made himself poor. Though he was rich, he made himself poor for the sake of all the whole world, especially those of us who have believed in him. So he's for our sake, the Lord Jesus Christ made himself poor that we, through his poverty, might be rich. And, of course, we have the riches of his wisdom and grace lavished upon us 
through his poverty the death on the cross. Verse 10, And herein I give advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so may be a performance also out of that which you have. For if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to what a man has, and not according to what he has not. And now the apostle brings home this gracious truth to roost in Corinth. He said it's been a year. He said it was a year ago. It was around last Passover time. It was around last Pentecost that you guys were supposed to give. It's been almost a year now. You haven't got it done. You had a willing mind. You had a ready mind. This was voluntary by you. Now there needs to be a follow-up and a performance. If there first be a willing mind, it's accepted according to whatever you have. And of course, that's what the apostle told them. Let each one lay up what he has according to as God has prospered him. God never calls you to give what you do not have. And don't think for one minute that he does. This idea, this notion that it's faith for you to make public promises, to give more than you have, believing that God will bless you so that you can, that is nothing of Scripture. What God wants is a willing mind by you, and then you give according to what you have. You don't have to give according to what you have not. You give according to what you have. And that shouldn't be at the expense of somebody that you're not paying, by the way. Here the apostle says there's a readiness of mind. Now there needs to be a readiness of will to actually do it. And how many times do we make up in our mind a good intention and fail to follow through it with the force of our will? Well, that's what he's talking about. It's time to perform. You've already got the willing mind. Now it's just acceptable according to what you have. Don't worry about what you don't have. Well, this is a marvelous lesson in giving. There's more of it for the next couple of chapters. These are precious truths that are easily distorted, and I hope we are able to bring them to you according to the gracious way that the Lord has written them. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. May God bless your meditation in His Word until our next time.